our children may be dismissed at this time to teach me to worship. And if the rest of you would turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 16. You know, I had been going through um, the book of Ephesians, uh, which is an epistle, very, very compact and filled with, with tight, profound theological statements. And I like to move things around a little bit, switch it up, and sometimes preach after an epistle on a narrative part of, of Scripture where we have stories and we have not so much tight doctrinal statements, but God revealing himself through history and, and how he works. And we will find out a lot about God uh, in these chapters here as we look through the life and the times of Elijah. I will begin a little bit beforehand in verse 25 of chapter 16. And we'll be reading chapter 17, verse 7. Let me pray before we begin. Lord, we ask that you would give us ears to hear your word. Help us to come to know you further through what we read and what we hear today. And help us to live with you as our God and to take comfort in the fact that you live and we stand before you. In Jesus' name, amen. 1 Kings chapter 16, starting with verse 25. This is God's word. Omri did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did more evil than all who were before him. For he walked in all the way of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and in the sins that he made Israel to sin, provoking the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger by their idols. Now, the rest of the acts of Omri that he did and the might that he showed, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Israel? And Omri slept with his fathers and was buried in Samaria, and Ahab his son reigned in his place. In the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, the son of Omri, began to reign over Israel. And Ahab, the son of Omri, reigned over, over Israel in Samaria 22 years. And Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord, more than all who were before him. And as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, he took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. He erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. And Ahab made an Asherah. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. In his days, Heel of Bethel built Jericho. He laid its foundation at the cost of Abiram, his firstborn, and set up its gates at the cost of his youngest son, Segub, 
according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by Joshua, the son of Nun. Now Elijah, the Tishbite of Tishba in Gilead, said to Ahab, As the Lord lives, as the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. And the word of the Lord came to him, Depart from here, and turn eastward, and hide yourself by the brook Cherith, which is east of the Jordan. You shall drink from the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord. He went and lived by the brook Cherith, that is east of the Jordan. And the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning, and bread and meat in the evening. And he drank from the brook. And after a while, the brook dried up because there was no rain in the land. This is God's word. Our passage this morning brings us to a low point in the history of Israel. After the great reigns of King David and King Solomon, you may know, you may remember that the kingdom of Israel split up into two parts. The northern kingdom, which had ten tribes, was called Israel. And the southern kingdom, which had Judah and Benjamin, two tribes, was called Judah. You might think, if you just hear this, that the north side would be the side to be on. They're named Israel. They have most of the people, most of the tribes. But Judah had God's promise that the Messiah would come from King David's line from Judah. Judah also had Jerusalem, the place out of all the earth that God had designated all of Israel to worship him. But Israel had rejected God's king. Israel had rejected God's worship and God's promises. The first king of Israel, Jeroboam, decided it wouldn't do to have his subjects crossing the border going down to Jerusalem to worship as the Lord had prescribed. So instead, he erected two golden calves, one in the north in Dan and one in the south. So it would be very convenient for all of his people, all of his subjects to go and worship God at a golden calf outside of Jerusalem, like the one that Aaron had so foolishly built hundreds of years earlier. Now that was convenient It was practical, but it wasn't obedient. Now, Jeroboam also, in addition to this, he set up new feast days that the Lord had not prescribed and new priests whom God had not appointed. Now, this puts Jeroboam and Israel into a strange position. They still claim to worship Yahweh, but now only the way they want to worship him And what sense does it make to worship a God that you don't think is worth obeying? I'll worship God if I feel like it, but if there's anything that he says that I don't like, I won't do that part. That's the way many people think today. What we're really saying is that we'll just do whatever we want. If we feel like worshiping God, we will. If we we don't want to, we won't. 
that we are the final authority. We are our own gods. That's what, that is what is at stake here. And so it should come as no surprise that as Jeroboam has made these moves to doing really whatever he wants to do, that the kingdom of Israel would just go from bad to worse and then to even worse. Elijah comes onto the scene here less than 60 years after the kingdom had split in two. But already seven different kings had ruled in the north. It's not because they served their two terms and a new king had to be elected. It was because they died. They were dying off because they were bad. It was a nasty, violent time. Some kings reigned for only a couple years before they were killed. One lasted only seven days before he committed suicide. They were drunks, they were murderers, they were traitors. But the sin that stands out in all of them is that they were unfaithful to the Lord. That is the heart of the problem. Once they decided that Yahweh was their God in name only, evil reigned. Now, being a hypocrite in the way that you worship God is bad enough. But you know what's worse? Outright rebellion and worshiping false gods instead of the Lord or alongside the Lord, as if God is simply just one of many gods, of a pantheon of gods. And that is where our passage begins. Ahab, the son of Omri, becomes king over Israel. He marries a Phoenician princess named Jezebel from Tyre. And they probably expected that marrying her would bring good trade and prosperity to both Israel and the people. Now, Tyre and Sidon, they're just north of Israel. Tyre exists in a few, about a hundred years before Carthage is founded and, and is ruling over trade in the Mediterranean. Tyre is a powerhouse economically of trade. This would be, this would seem to secure your northern border, secure a great port, create great trade. Along with it, you get Jezebel, the worst woman in the entire Bible, that in Revelation, they'll talk badly about a false teacher and call her Jezebel because Jezebel is so bad. Jezebel ends up being worse for Israel than the hundreds of, Sol of Solomon's wives that he had. Now, the economy was booming. Uh, Ahab reigned not for seven days, but for 22 years. Trade increased. Alliances have grown stronger. We can see in our passage, cities are being built. Jeroboam, uh, Ahab had a palace that was inlaid with ivory. On the outside, if you judge your leaders by how the economy is doing, you would say, Ahab's pretty good. Not bad. The, the nation is growing in stability. From a worldly perspective, he's not a bad ruler. But God has a different opinion, a different standard. And his standard, his opinion, is indeed the only one that matters because he is the judge of the world. And what impresses God is not a good economy. What impresses God is faithfulness and humility before him.
Ahab, in the end, was terrible. His father, Omri, had briefly carried that terrible title of the worst king ever. And then Ahab took it and ran with it. Ahab was a new level of evil, more wicked than all the kings before him. This is what he's judged on. And this judgment that God has cast over all these kings, it is the standard by which they are, are judged and the way we are judged, our relationship to the Lord. What a fearful thing it will be to hear Jesus say, depart from you, depart from me. I never knew you. And so the judgment comes on whether or not we know the Lord. It was the same for these kings. Brothers and sisters, do, we, do you know the Lord? Do you know Jesus Christ? Do you love him? Do you serve him only? These are the things that are the most important things. Not your, your, your bank account. Not your position at work not how many Facebook followers or whatever people are using these days you have. Our relationship to the Lord is what matters. And do we serve him faithfully? Do we serve him when, when we don't want to? Do, or do we serve him when only we feel like it, when it pleases us? For Ahab, verse 31, it tells us that the sins of the kings before him were like child's play to him. They were the little leagues. The next few verses list one despicable thing after another. First, he marries Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, the king of the Sidonians. There, in Sidon, they worshipped Baal. You can even see it in Ethbaal's name. He's named after him. And along with all this increased trade, there comes Baal worship. It comes sweeping over Israel. It wasn't enough that Jezebel worshipped Baal privately. No, she came down like a missionary, wanting to convert the entire nation. She brought with her practically an army of Baal priests, and she quickly went to work systematically killing off all the Lord's prophets. And what does Ahab do? Does he go and, he, and worship the Lord his God and serve him only? No. Verse 31 and 32 tell us, he went and he served Baal, and he worshiped Baal. So he erected an altar for Baal in the house for Baal that he built in Samaria. How unlike King Jesus, whose faithfulness to God couldn't be swayed for all the economies in all the world. All the riches, he would not bow down and worship anyone else but God. Now, old King Jeroboam had been a hypocrite in the way that he worshipped the Lord. But Ahab, you see, worships a different God altogether. He worshipped Baal, served Baal, built a temple for Baal, an altar for Baal. This is clearly worse on top of that, in verse 33, we find that he's not faithful to Baal either. He builds an Asherah as well, wooden symbols of a female deity. So now we have the worst king of Israel 
the worst king that Israel had ever seen, sitting on the throne, married to the worst woman in the Bible. The prophets are being killed. God's name is openly being put to shame. God's word is considered of no account, irrelevant, meaningless. And I think that's what we are being reminded of here in verse 34, the last verse of the chapter. See, there was a curse made hundreds of years earlier in the time of Joshua. You remember, he destroyed Jericho, or he stood by and yelled while God destroyed Jericho. But the curse was that if any man, back in Joshua 6, was to rebuild Jericho, he would lose his firstborn son at the beginning of the construction and his youngest son when the gates were set up. But who cares? Who cares what God says? He else certainly didn't. You would think that as he's building Jericho and his first son dies as he lays, lays the, the foundation, he would stop. But he obstinately continues until his youngest son dies as well. So this is just outright defiance of God's word from the king all the way down to the builders. God's word is being lost and considered of no account. It is a dark time in Israel. The true worship of God has almost been entirely extinguished. But you see, not all was lost because God's power is not measured in numbers. Somewhere in the rough backwoods, the little esteemed area of Gilead, there was a man who was very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. And his name was Elijah. He was a simply dressed man, not a man of the stately courts of the politicians. He could be recognized by his simple clothing of camel hair. But God looks on the heart. And Elijah was a man who loved the Lord. He didn't write a book like Isaiah or Jeremiah, but he's often considered one of the greatest prophets of the Old Testament. Matthew Henry says, Never was Israel so blessed with such a good prophet as when she was plagued with so bad a king. But Elijah comes in with almost no introduction. We don't know about his family. Really, we don't know where he went to school. We don't know what his personality is like, who his parents were, or when and how God called him to be a prophet. He just shows up, just appears. As one pastor said, Elijah comes in like a storm and he leaves in a whirlwind. Literally, that's Elijah. And we don't need to know his background. What matters much more than that is God's word. Elijah is a messenger of God's word. That is where God is focusing our attention in this passage. We don't need to know Elijah's background. Still, the Jewish reader would be able to see right away something about Elijah that makes him stand apart from all the Baal worship that's taken over the land, and that is his name. Elijah's name itself was a testimony against Ahab's Baal worship because the L part of his name is the word for God. El, God. Eli, my God. Elijah, my God is Yahweh. That's what his name means. 
My God is Yahweh. And he comes right up to this wicked king Ahab who has been worshiping Baal, a simple man before a king, like Moses before Pharaoh, Paul before Agrippa. But he carries God's word. And that word rules far above all the, the, the puny kings of this world. Elijah's message is short, but it is powerful and it is full of meaning. He says this, As Yahweh, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand, surely there will be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. And then he's gone. That's it. It's short, but really there's so much there. As Yahweh, the God of Israel, lives. That is not just the beginning of an oath. That is a statement of fact. God lives. Yahweh lives. In contrast to all the dead idols, Yahweh is the living God. And he doesn't simply say, as Yahweh lives, or as Yahweh, my God, lives. He says, rather, as Yahweh, the God of Israel, lives. And if Yahweh is the God of Israel, and Yahweh lives, it means King Ahab and all the other worshipers have made a huge mistake. What's more, we also see here the ground of Elijah's boldness and confidence. He is not intimidated by the vast numbers of the prophets of Baal. He's not unwilling to stand in defiance before a powerful and evil king because Elijah stands before the Lord too. And he is the Lord's servant. Brothers and sisters, I want you to consider that. In the face of all your oppositions, all your trials, your temptations, does this fact not give you confidence to stand firm? That all authority in heaven and earth has been given to your faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. And that he is with you till the end of the age. That we serve him and he cares for us. Does that control your actions? It did for Elijah. Here he was speaking boldly, powerfully before a king. A man in camel hair from the backwoods telling the king what's going to happen and what the weather's going to be like for the next few years. And then he leaves with authority. Surely there will be neither dew nor rain all these years except by my word. You might wonder, why no rain? Well, first of all, because the Bible tells me so. This is actually what Moses had promised back in Deuteronomy chapter 11, verses 16 and 17. He says this, Beware lest your hearts be deceived, and you turn away and serve other gods and worship them. Or the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, and he will shut up the heavens so that there will be no rain. Now that sad curse, just like the curse 
about the rebuilding of Jericho has come to pass. And you see, God's word, though it has been rejected, is controlling everything. This is a covenant curse that has now come to pass, just as God said in Elijah's day now. Now, do you see the emphasis on the word of the Lord in these verses? Everything at the end of the, chapter 16 was happen, happened according to God's word given by Joshua hundreds of years earlier. Now at the beginning of chapter 17, the future is controlled by God's word as well. Should there be any doubt that this will also come to pass? This is a, a message of judgment. There is some comfort in it, brothers and sisters, because if God keeps his word about judgment, he'll also keep his word about the merciful promises he's given us in Christ. God is faithful. God's word is powerful. It's true. And how blessed we are to have it. That here, uh, uh, Elijah is kind of like Jonah, standing before a wicked king, in Jonah's case, it was Nineveh. God's word coming to them about judgment was also an opportunity for them to repent, for the king of Nineveh to lead his people in repentance. God could have just shut up the sky so there would be no rain and not told anybody, but he does. And so even God's judgments are opportunities for us to repent. Ahab, though, is outdone by the king of Nineveh. Ahab continues neglecting, rejecting God's word. So God's word comes to Elijah once more. Verse 3, go away from here and hide yourself by the brook Cherith, which is east of the Jordan, outside of Israel. And there, in this, by this lowly little creek, God would quietly and carefully take care of his prophet. God had provided sustenance for him. First, he has water to drink from the brook, but also he will have food to eat as well. The ravens will come and they will bring him bread and meat twice a day. So his faithfulness would be new every morning and every evening. Now, ravens were unlikely helpers here. They are unclean animals. Here, God is showing his power, not just over the weather, but over the animals too, outside of Israel. God is on a mission, you see, to show that he is God over all the earth, that he is sovereign. There is no borders to his control. There is nothing outside of him. God controls the weather. He controls the animals. Now, Elijah's life next to that brook would not have been luxurious. It would have been a test of faith for him to sit there and watch the water slowly drying up as the stream gets smaller and smaller each day until eventually it's gone. And sometimes we could be like this. We see our resources being used up we, we see the end is coming, and we can 
We can measure it out. I'm going to die at this point if this continues and God doesn't do something about it. And we could be controlled by fear like Peter walking on the water, looking at the waves, measuring his, his, his situation by his own strength rather than the Lord's and being overcome. But there's also the ravens too. Every day, God is miraculously bringing, faithfully bringing meat and bread to Elijah. This is not just some roadkill that they found. I don't know how they're doing it. They're bringing bread to him. And here he sees God's faithfulness. And will his, will his life be characterized by looking at his worries and things drying up or looking at God's faithfulness? Brothers and sisters, you might feel like a creek is drying up in your life. I want you to also consider the ways that God is providing for you each day and have that characterize your outlook on the future. Now, Elijah was perfectly safe in God's hands. Even the creek drying up showed that God was faithful. He didn't have much, but he had God's word and he had God's mercies new every morning and every evening. But behold, both the kindness and the severity of God, God's prophet and his, his powerful word with the prophet had been taken away and hidden from them. Ahab and, his, and the people of Israel had rejected God's word. Now God takes that word away. God will hide it. And they might not have cared the first few days uh, or weeks after Elijah was gone. They might have wondered, who was that guy? Perhaps their hearts were so hard that maybe months passed. But eventually, everybody would start wondering, where did that guy go? Where is Elijah? As the years go by with not a drop of rain from the sky. And we can only imagine how, how soon this would have the attention of the entire country. Because for an agrarian society to go without rain for three years is absolutely devastating. This, this whole episode must have been particularly enraging for the worshipers of Baal. Because, you see, there was another reason why God stopped the rain. First, because God's word tells me so. But second, because Baal was supposedly the God of rain. He was the God of the storm, the rain God. And here, Yahweh is showing that he is the only living and true God in all the earth. Like Moses before Pharaoh, the plagues were not just random demonstrations of power. They worshiped the Nile. That is why it turned to blood. They worshiped the sun in Egypt. That's why darkness came. God is showing that he is God, and there is no other. He has no rivals, and that all must turn and serve him, not Baal. And we must remind ourselves not to fall into the same mistake that Israel did. We don't worship Baal. 
But how often do we put our hope and our trust in things that cannot satisfy, things that cannot provide, instead of on God? Do you have something that's like a little bail to you that you are relying on instead of God? A false Christ that, that God may take away so that you might see that he is the only one who provides for you. And God is warning us here. He's calling us back to his word to seek his face The prophet Amos wrote, Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord God, when I will send a famine on the land, not a famine for bread or a thirst for water, but rather for hearing the words of the Lord. And people will stagger from sea to sea and from the north even to the east. They will go to and fro to seek the word of the Lord. Then he adds these terrifying words but they will not find it. How lost we would be without God's word. Israel had to learn that lesson the hard way. How sad would it be if God stopped up our ears and God's word departed from us too. And you might think, well, that would never happen today. I can just pull it up on an app on my phone. You can't burn it. I've got... 15 Bibles at my house. But God can remove his word from us even when the Bible is all around you. For unless he continues to show us his mercy and grace, we will neither have the heart to read it, the attention to listen to it, the mind to understand it, the faith to believe it, or the will to obey it. So let us pray that God would turn our hearts back to himself to seek seek his word that we might know him, that we might trust in him, that we might have a thirst for him, to hear him every day before it's too late and and you find that you've become careless and neglecting of God's word and God's presence. Let us, brothers and sisters, treasure God's word and honor it with our obedience and love. And let us beware of hardening our hearts to it or taking it for granted. Brothers and sisters, harden your hearts no more. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for giving us your word today. We thank you that it's still here that you have not removed it, that your church still exists in Mount Pleasant. We pray, Lord, that you would hold us fast, that you would make it so we never trust on ourselves, but trust in you with all our heart. We pray that you would make our ways straight and that you would keep us clinging to you, clinging to our Savior, And with joy, pronounce that you live, that all authority in heaven and earth has been given to you, and we stand before you. Lord, strengthen us today with your presence. In Jesus' name, amen.